to Luke chapter 12, and we'll finish up here with chapter 12 and break into chapter 13 to verse 9. Luke 12, 54 through chapter 13 and verse 9. Titled this morning's message, Time is of the Essence. Now, um, we're all familiar with that phrase, or most of us are, and we know that that's a legal phrase that they use to specify that little period of time that each party must complete their responsibility for uh, within that contract. There's obligations that you're committing to, and you need it. you have a certain time that you have to get it done. If you don't do it in that period of time, well, then you know, of course, that's the breach of contract. So. You know, for those of you in business and those of you who have studied business, maybe in college and all, um, <laughs> so, is it, I hear an echo. <laughs> but, you know, the business world is full of ideas uh, about you know, making a living and, and earning money and, you know, and all. And, um, you know, the, the old phrase, you know, uh, time is money. Yeah, but, you know, the old saying also says, you know, money can't buy you time. We have a limited amount of that. That's, that's one of the things uh, we should take, really pay attention to. Use our time wisely. It's one of the greatest, greatest resources that we have. And, you know, one of the traps, if you study business at all, at all, is the undisciplined pursuit of more. So we want more customers, and so we're, you know, how can we get more customers? And we waste a lot of time in a, sort of an undisciplined fashion to acquire more uh, customers and thus increase our business. But it's really, in reality, what's been discovered by some really smart people who love making money is... A more effective business model is to pursue less with a disciplined focus. And I think uh, that pertains to our lives and what we do. Sometimes uh, less is more. And we try to jam a lot of stuff into our lives and and we don't make the progress that we're uh, wanting to. And and this is, in reality, this is sort of the idea that I have about ministry. I think discipleship is more important than church attendance. And if you know what I mean, I think there's a place for big churches. I'm not against big churches. I'm not envious of big churches. I'm a country kid. I like having a country church. I love down-to-earth folks. I mean, you know, I just, that's who I am. Uh, But I... Look at the model that Jesus have. He didn't reach the multitudes, though he preached to the multitudes. He's concentrated on 12 guys. He taught those 12 guys how to encounter and have an encounter with God. He taught those 12 men how to walk with, with and, and, and have fellowship with the Father. Those 12 men ended up turning the world upside down for Jesus, or in our case, right side up for God. You know, and, and if we in our fellowship here, become disciples. We're learning this in our men's study. We picked up this yesterday. We started in our thing, equipping the saints. We are learners. A disciple is one who learns. My responsibility as a pastor is to feed the flock of God, to give you the truth of God, to give you the wherewithal that you know the nature and character of God and you walk with God and you pursue that. Because when you know God and you trust God, he's going to bring you to other people who need God, and you're then 
going to know how to help them because you've been helped, you've learned, you've grown, and you know the Lord. It's what it's about. So focusing on the less and building those up can be more effective than trying to reach the masses and there's no accountability. And I'm just glad that you're part of what God is doing here. God is at work here. He's laying a good foundation in the lives of people. But I think if we would concentrate on making disciples rather than so-called converts, we would do much better in the church of Jesus Christ. It's growing and maturing in our faith, not remaining uh, spiritually immature, not understanding God, being offended by God. Those are all things that happen to people who are very immature in the faith. God wants us to grow and be uh, all that he intended us to be. Now, as we pick this up here, uh, we're going to see how important discernment is and how important right judgment is, according to Jesus. Now, he's a, uh, some of this material here uh, is in a different order than maybe some of the other Gospels, but I believe that some of this, these things that Jesus is bringing here are more towards the end of his ministry. Um, and, and we'll see the, the last half of this uh, Gospel is, con, you know, the last uh, year, six months of his ministry, uh, by, by and large. But um, let's pick it up in verse 54. We'll read through verse, verse 59 uh, to uh, discuss this discernment and judgment that's uh, so needed. Verse 54 reads, Then he also said to the multitudes, Whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west... Immediately you say, a shower is coming, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, well, there will be hot weather, and there it is. Hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that you do not discern this time? Yes, and why even yourself do you not judge what is right? When you go to your adversary, to the magistrate, Make every effort along the way to settle with him, lest he drag you to the judge and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you shall not depart from there until you have paid the very last mite. I mean, this guy in this last few verses, he's mad. He's using force. He's dragging this person, you know, to the magistrate. This, so the idea here and what Jesus is talking about, this is serious. This is important. Normal human be- behavior uh, is that we are to be uh, aware of our surroundings. Um, in the context of what we're talking about here, Israel, uh, God's chosen people, were waiting for the promise of God, the promised Messiah. And if you are God's chosen people and he tells you that the Messiah is coming, then you should be paying attention to God fulfilling that promise because God has a pretty good track record when it comes to predicting things and keeping his word, is he not? He's not failed once and uh, ever. And so they are going to be held responsible for this. And he's tells them to pay attention. You, you naturally pay attention to the face of the sky and the face of the earth. Uh, and the idea is that in a subtle way saying, you should be paying a, a attention to heavenly things. You should be paying attention to what's going around in your surroundings on the earth, how God is at work on the horizontal level with people. 
But you guys are just actors. You're acting religious. You're acting as though you know and you're spiritual. He is going to hold this generation responsible for the knowledge of his coming. But they were blinded. Why could they not see? They were blinded by their prejudices. They were just there uh, without observing what was really going on. You know, uh, I mean... This is not a hard thing. People generally understand their physical surroundings. They, you know, as Jesus said, you know, you, you, you pay attention to the weather and what do you do when uh, the rainstorm's coming and the clouds are forming? Well, make sure the windows are up in your vehicle, right? <laughs> this is a funny thing. Of, ah! <laughs> you know, we go running out there and, you know, then we have to wipe off the inside of our car or truck because we didn't get there in time and we failed to pay attention, right? But we react to these things, and this is important. Well, Jesus is bringing us into the spiritual forecast for them. You should be aware. You should, guys should know. Uh, the Pharisees, what were they concerned about? They were more concerned about more signs. We want absolute proof. We want to be able to go into the laboratory and, you know, this is how it is. You know, like the atheists, they want to take us into the lab and prove that God exists. That how you fool. We'll see how God calls them fools here in a little bit. You know, how many miracles would Jesus really have to do for them to believe? How many more? You know, John the Baptist. Uh, was offended by the ministry of Jesus. You know, he was sort of an anchor, right? He kind of just was ascetic, and he sort of like didn't really run with the crowds, and had a kind of had a strange dress and uh, even more stranger diet. But he was a prophet, and he spoke the word of God, and he was sort of offended a little bit as you read about that Jesus was partying from his perspective. He's eating with sinners. Here I am, I've lived a strict life, I've been faithful to God, is, are, are you the coming one, or should we look for another? This he said through his disciples to Jesus, and they came and asked him, and what did Jesus do? Well, he pointed him to the scripture. What did the scripture say? The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are healed. You see, you always go to the word of God. And they, Israel had the word of God. The Pharisees had the word of God. They were going to be held accountable for the knowledge that they had been given. But they didn't believe because their hearts were hard. They were using religion for their own gain. They should have recognized Jesus as Messiah. They should have recognized and they should have believed the word of John the Baptist and also the word of Jesus Christ, that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. What you've been waiting for all this time since the promise of the fathers was the kingdom of God and it is here. Take it. Take advantage of it. But it wasn't the kind of kingdom that they were looking for, was it? Because what they were waiting for was complete deliverance from their enemies. They were not going to believe until Jesus took down the Caesar until he took down Rome and he sat on the throne and he became the king over Israel. That's what they were looking for. And Jesus didn't meet their criteria. You know, he's just using this metaphor here as a, just a, really, it's, he's being gentle in his reproof of their inability to understand what was going on. 
You know, you guys get the rain and the wind and you prepare accordingly. Now notice here, there's a word that sticks out here in verse 54. It says, immediately. You know, it's not hard to figure out dark clouds, wind, whiteness coming towards me. That's rain. I mean, we don't, like, we don't go to the lab and figure that out. It's immediately understood. This is innate. This should have been innate, and it should have been immediately picked up by the nation of Israel that this is the Messiah. Nobody else has talked like this. Nobody else spoke like this, and nobody raised the dead and worked miracles like this. I, you know, I think there's something about this guy. I think maybe, right, they, you know, it wasn't about that. It was about losing control of their positions of power, as we will learn later in the gospel. Time is at hand. You know, time is of the essence. We are required by God to respond in the appropriate way when we are given the knowledge of various things that are in play. Paul has a good counsel, uh, a good counsel to the Ephesians in regarding the use of time. Ephesians 5 15 through 21, if you'll pull that up. See then that you walk circumspectly, which would mean seriously and paying attention, (laughs) not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and submitting to one another in the fear of God. Kind of sounds like a little bit of our worship this morning, isn't it? Singing with psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, the melody that was in our hearts, the love that we're expressing to God. That's what church is about. Just loving the Lord as the body of Christ. And so the exhortation here is, is to not be foolish with our time, not be uninformed. But, you know, and, and you, ha- you must answer the question yourself this morning. Do I know what the will of God is for my life? Do I understand how God wants to use me? Do I understand what my gifts, what my calling is in life? If you can't answer that question, then that's where you start. It's not hard. Lord, I have no clue why I'm here or what I'm doing. Would you please instruct me? That kind of prayer and that kind of seeking of the face of God will get you an understanding of what his will is. And you better be on to it because time is short. And time is of the essence. There's an obligation that you and I have. We were created for a purpose. We were created to image him in a very certain way. That's why he made you. That's why he made me the way he made us because we can only image God in that way in this world. Very individualistic in that regard. He wants us to have proper judgment. And as I said, there's many things that we know instinctively. We refuse it because we don't want to be indicted by the truth sometimes. That's why the the Pharisees didn't like him because Jesus told them the truth about themselves and about who he was. They just were unwilling to receive it. Romans 1, 18 through 21 explains 
predicament in the position of natural man for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Have we seen that happen in our communities and in our world today? I mean, it's like, just beyond words. It happens every day. The propaganda, the lies. If you're listening to the mainstream media, you're just listening to lies. We really don't know. You, you get reports from other foreign news sources and then, and then you compare them to how it's being reported in the United States. Like, wait, hold, is, is that the same event? You know, so there's something going on. It's controlled media. It's, you know, the 4 a.m. news drop that, you know, I find it really interesting that no matter which one of those lying stations and you listen to, they're all the same. The same words. You know, CNN, Fox, it's the same 4 a.m. drop. That should be suspect right there, that you should probably not waste your time. Yes, go ahead and look for alternative news outlets if you're in need of knowing what's going on in the world. I kind of have an idea, and I don't really care anymore. I care about, I'll pray, and I want to trust God because I can't really change that. I just know that I need to be transformed to be effective in the world in which I live, and that's my concern. That's how I want to spend my time. That's the conviction of my heart. You may have a different one, and that's totally up to you. But notice what we read here. The, since creation, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. They are without excuse. I've listened to a number of these atheists lately. I don't know why. I'm trying not to binge watch, okay? <laughs> but sometimes I get, you know, I like to see the debates between guys that are really good at presenting the argument for God and those that are clueless about God's existence. And to see that exchange is extraordinary at times. And so just confessing, I've kind of got caught up in that lately. These people are without excuse, though. I remember having an, an encounter with a friend, and I was living in rebellion. We were working together, and we were driving home one night. He was driving, and I was, he's you know, three or four years older, a little smarter and that, at this point in time. And he asked me, since I was an immoral individual at the time, he said, do you believe in God? So, well, I don't know. All I know is that if there isn't a God, there's going to be a lot of upset, upset people. I didn't use that word, but uh, essentially that's what I was saying. If there isn't a God, there's going to be a lot of upset people. Well, why did I say that? I know why I said that. Because if I admitted that there was a God, that that means innately I know that I'm accountable to him. And I wasn't having that. I don't want that. Because I know the way I'm living isn't according to my conscience. My conscience bothers me. You know, it's like everybody knows instinctively what's right and what's wrong. Do we not? You don't have to, like, explain that to a child even. Johnny, do not get in the cookie jar before dinner. So why is Johnny, as he's headed to the cookie jar, looking over his shoulder? Because he knows that that's not the right thing to be doing. 
So children know what's right. Adults know what's right. And when we admit that, then we also admit that we are accountable for our actions. In this case here, uh, context, we're accountable to higher authorities. So if someone has a legal issue with you, and that person's going to take you to court uh, before the judge or the magistrate, deal with it. Don't let it get that far. The guy's angry. The guy's mad. Let's try to settle this out of court, right? How do you think it will be for those who have not settled with God before their time? They did not appreciate the phrase, time was of the essence. And they did not take the time to prepare themselves for their meeting with God. You know, the storm's coming. The storm of death will come. You know, are people prepared for that? Are they prepared for their meeting with God? Have people made their peace with God? That's really a, that's a very gentle way of sharing the gospel with people. Hey, have you made peace with God? And then you can begin a conversation. Do you have any kind of spiritual belief? Do you? Who is Jesus? If you died tonight, would you go to heaven or would you go to hell? Those are important questions to, to address people. You know, the, the thing you can draw from these, this context is that there's a natural adversity that fallen man has with God and there's a legal issue that needs to be dealt with. He, there, we are adversaries. Of course, there are those who think, well, you know, I'm really a good person. Come on. I got, my good works, my good deeds completely outweigh all the bad things that I've ever done. Are you willing to risk your case on that when you stand before God. The Bible said he is the judge. He's the judge of all the earth. Now, I'm not going to judge the guy who's, uh, I'm not going to question the person that says that uh, they think their works are good enough. I just know that I would tell them the truth. Psalm 14.3 tells us they've all turned aside. They've all Together become corrupt. There is none good. No, not one. And Psalm 53 repeats it. Paul uses this in Romans 10. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They're corrupt and have done abominable iniquity. There's none who does good. And so God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any those who understand, who seek God. For every one of them has turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. So you, are you going to believe the lie you're telling yourself? Or are you going to believe God's position on this? Because in order to come into the presence of God, you must be completely holy and perfect. And I've yet to meet one of those individuals. For the record, I'm not the exception and neither are you. 
And you need to admit that. I just don't know how we could be so deceived to think that our good works could, out, and our, could outweigh our bad works. And somehow that would be good enough to let God come through the, us come through the pearly gates into his presence. I just don't know why we believe that. But there are a lot of people who are resting upon their works. See, nobody is righteous. That's what we've read, is it not? No one is righteous. The only way we are righteous is through faith by receiving the gift, because righteousness is a gift to you and to me. And that gift of righteousness is only received through the forgiveness of our sins. If your works or my works could merit eternal life, then why, pray tell, would Jesus even come to the earth? Why would he humble himself and die and become the atoning sacrifice upon the cross? It's, it's his dead in vain. It's, it's a waste. If we can, by our good works, please God. You know, when you... Re- so, so what we're doing is we're trying to find favor with God by being a good boy or a good girl, right? It's really what we're trying to do. And we get competitive. We, we, we can become competitive with one another in our good works. When you receive the gift of righteousness, there's a miraculous thing that takes place within the human heart. You're no longer striving to do good works to curry favor with God. You're now doing good things to help other people because you love them. It's the love of God that's transformed your heart and your life. And you understand that you, through the forgiveness of sins, that other people need to have their sins forgiven. And they need to enjoy the gift of righteousness as you are. There's a total motivational change when you receive the gift because the gift is not something you earn. You don't pay for a gift. That's not a gift. That's debt. If you work for it, it incurs debt. It's owed to you. If it's a free gift, you didn't earn it. And this is what the Bible teaches us. Verses, or chapter 13, as we move along here, and responsibility we have as Jesus follows right up with this as he was speaking there were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans verse 1 whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices and Jesus answered and said to them do you suppose that the Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things I tell you no But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Of those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse sinners than all the other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will likewise perish. You know, so the crowd and members of the crowd that have witnessed these things, this accident of the tower falling and then potentially this political murder, it sounds like, uh, were these people, because it was such a horrendous thing, they're being punished for their sin. Now, for some reason, we just seem to have this general conviction that if we sin that we're going to be afflict. There's going to be this physical affliction that comes upon us, so that we're paying in pain for our sins. Now, 
I know the Bible says the blueness of a wound cleanses away evil, so I get that. <laughs> Believe me, I've hit my hands and fingers and thumbs with the, I've hit the wrong nail many times, right? And it's like, okay, what, all right, I, what do I do wrong? I'm saying, Lord, forgive me, you know. It's like I deserve to be punished for my bad thoughts or something, right? We just, I don't know what it is. We just naturally think that way because we are sinful and our hearts condemn us, unfortunately. Um, we do have another conviction that the greater the crime, the greater the agony and pain that person's death is going to be, right? It's only, you know, tit for tat type of thing. We just judge people that way, or at least I do. Maybe you don't. Bless your heart if you don't. Um, um, and I think there's something to the punishment we receive from God for uh, greater sins. Uh, the person who does a great crime against young children, innocent children, and the guy who may cheat on his final exam, uh, his final college exam, I think there's a different... Both of them are sinful, agreed. Uh, both of them are wrong, and both of them are punishable. But I believe the person who injures an innocent child will be definitely punished to a greater degree than the guy who may you know, cheat on his final exam. You know, the caliber of the sin matters, right? Um, the greater the sin, the greater the punishment uh, seems to be a truth in the scriptures. Uh, equity and judgment, we would say, right? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I mean, that's, and, but all that belongs to God and not us. Now, the people here are focusing on the sins of the people that died under the tower. And of course, those poor people who were sacrificing to, to whatever God and, you know, for whatever reason, Pilate took them out while they were sacrificing. Now, they must have been really bad people for that to happen to them. And you notice Jesus didn't focus on the sin. And God doesn't do that. You know, I've been waiting for you, son. About time you confess that sin. You know, God, does, God he just, he lets sin if you're going to, you know, you don't want to deal with your sin, he just lets it work its ugliness in your life. That's part of the punishment. He's full of compassion. <laughs> you really want to carry that, bro? You know, that's his response. Like, you really want to deal with that? How about if you just confess it and let me wash it away and I'll forgive you? You know, that's his approach. You, you think these guys who did these things were more, they were worse than everybody else? I think not. Because all sin is forgivable. We're talking about degrees of punishment maybe, but it's still enough to keep a person out of the presence of God. What's the key? What's the point? What's the most important truth Jesus is trying to communicate here? Repentance. We're all, you're all sinners. You need to repent. You need to turn to God. This was the message that they'd been hearing for well over four years by now. I mean, the word had spread. The kingdom is at hand. John's been preaching. Repent. Make the way straight. And this is what he said in chapter 3. It's written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Get it right. Time is of the essence, right? Make your path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low, the crooked places made straight, 
and the rough ways smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Get it right. Prepare. Time is of the essence. Repentance is required to enter into the kingdom of God. Repentance is preached throughout the whole entire Bible. The basic idea of the word in Hebrew, I'm not going to try to pronounce, it's just SWB. It means it just means to turn. But it's tied with sojourning, it's tied with pilgrimage. Uh, so says the New International Dictionary. The New Testament word metanoia is the idea of changing their mind through action. And changing your mind involves regret or remorse. A person who is truly repenting and turning to God, there's remorse. There's sorrow and regret. I still have regrets for my past BC days. My mind was scarred. My spirit was scarred through disobedience and riotous living. God has healed, been very gracious. But every now and then I'll have a flashback, you know, like, whoa, how shameful. But there in my life was a, a deep remorse and regret for my sins. I turned to God. I turned away from my sin. And see, there must be a willingness to turn from sin and to God for repentance to be real and effective. So there's two choices that Jesus left these people with. It's repent or perish. There's no in-between. Well, you know, maybe we'll just go to that place in between heaven and hell. You know, I think they refer to that as purgatory. I think I'll just go there. I don't mind going there. Of course, most of us, we just, as soon as we stop breathing, it's over. We don't exist anymore. Surprise, surprise. That's not what the Bible teaches. You want to gamble your life on that? You want to bet on that one, buddy? Just because you think you're smart and you've got it all figured out? Do you think in all your knowledge, you know it all and that, you understand the greater reality of the spiritual realm that you don't think exists. There's only two options for fallen human beings. It's repent or, or perish. Physical death. There's two kinds of death in the Bible. There's physical death and there's spiritual death. The, the biblical definition of death is separation. What happens at physical death is your soul and your spirit, the inner person that we are, the unseen part of our being, our personality and all, separates from our physical body. The body stops breathing, the heart stops beating, and there's that separation. We call that death, physical death. But there also is a spiritual death, and that means separation from God after facing the judgment seat and giving an account of your life. This is referred to as the second death. Revelation 20, verse 11 through 15, if you're taking notes, John, in his vision, said, I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, 
standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works. Where do your works show up if you don't believe? It ain't heaven. Yeah, your works matter. By the things which were written in the books, the sea gave up the dead that were in it. The death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. And death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. If you are born again, if you're born twice, born physically into this world and born again of the Spirit, you only die once. If you fail to repent and turn to Christ and receive the forgiveness of your sins, you'll be judged for your works and you will suffer two deaths. You'll die physically and then you'll suffer the second death, which is spiritual death, which means that person will be separated from God for eternity. The unthinkable consequences of those who fail to repent. Now, I'm not one to judge anyone. There's only one judge and one lawgiver, and he's faithful, and he's true, and he's fair. But I think the most important thing for everyone sitting in this room is to know that you have secured your salvation, that there is no doubt if you close your eyes for the last time tonight and you never awake again, you'll be in the presence of God. If you don't have that confidence, then you need to speak with me or one of the elders afterwards. We will pray with you and we will make sure that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life and your eternity is secure in Christ. That's the most important decision you'll ever make in your life. Jesus ends this section here with an expression actually of God's patience. Verse 6, he says, he also spoke a parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, hey, look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let alone this year also, until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that, you can cut it down. You know, if you plant a vineyard, you got the idea that you want to collect something from it. You know, there's a purpose for it. You want, to, you want the fruit. And so here we have a certain man and his fig tree. And the natural thing would be to come to collect its fruit and not finding anything. And then notice that he says here, for three years. So do you, do you think maybe the certain man might be Jesus? It's possible. Do you think he might be coming to the nation of Israel, the fig tree, looking for what kind of fruit, pray tell? The fruit of repentance, the fruit of faith. They actually believe their scriptures, the oracles that were delivered to them, that this would be the Messiah, the description that's given throughout Isaiah in the Old Testament prophets, unmistakable, 300 prophecies given to describe where he would be born and the acts that he would perform. And so he's looking for that fruit of repentance, a turning to God. And he's frustrated. 
Cut it down. It's just wasting up. It's not fulfilling the purpose for which it was planted. That's what God's looking for us in our lives. Just trust him, to love him, to serve him. And I don't know who the keeper of the vineyard is, but he has a good idea, and he's expressing the mercy of God. Let's give it another shot, man. Hold on, hold on. Let's give him another shot. I shared this, I've shared this verse with backslidden Christians. They've turned away. They've hardened their heart. They've been offended by God. God didn't do this for me. God didn't deliver, and they're, they're not happy people. It says, you know, look, give God another shot. Give him another try, and it's not like you think it is. You know, we've all put expectations. Who hasn't put expectations on the Lord? I mean, let's get real. How many times have we put, you know, I hope you haven't, but I have. And I, I can remember on occasion... Uh, and not really know that you don't always realize to what extent you're doing that. But I know that there was an anger in my heart. And it came out in one of my, and I was, as I was praying one day, and I was appalled that I was actually upset with God. I was angry with him because I put all this time and effort in this project, so to speak, and the results were failure from my perspective. Oh, why didn't you bless that, you know? Like, you owe it to me, God, because I've sacrificed so much, you know. <laughs> Almost as much as Jesus, you know. He's <laughs> sick. <laughs> you know, the, the stuff we lay on God. It's really sad. I mean, you know, it's just, we're just messed up. And so you have to deal with your anger. You really do. You just got to lay it down and stop being mad. You know, a lot of stuff that we get angry about, if you think about it, 50 years from now, then I got moved to a hill of beans. Maybe even five years. It's all about perspective sometimes. So the responsibility of man, of man is to have fruit in your life that demonstrates you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. A man is known by his fruits. If you have little faith, you'll have little fruit. If you have no faith, you'll have no fruit, right? If you have much faith, you'll have much fruit. And so Lord gives us all a space of time to repent, to get things right. But time is of the essence. You got to be paying attention to what's going on around you. This race car driver, he picked up on this little saying, time is of the essence. He says, well, I'm short on essence. (laughs) Maybe you feel pretty blah. You feel pretty worthless. I've wasted so much time. I've missed the boat. No, that train's taken off from the station. The ship has sailed. No. God is able to restore another Metaphor, God is able to restore what the locusts have eaten. You may feel that your life is, you've been ripped off and it's not, you don't have enough time left to get it right. Oh, yes, you do. God is able to salvage anyone who will repent 
Anyone who will return to him will find mercy. If you're still breathing, you have time to make peace with God. All you need to do is ask him for the forgiveness. Ask in sincerity to just put you back in the zone and get you back on track and he'll oblige you. He'll meet you where you are at. He will wash you. He will cleanse you. He will sanctify your life and you will become a useful vessel that brings honor and glory to God. The choice is yours. It's always The ball is always in our court when it comes to serving God and walking with God. Don't lay the lie on yourself that only oh, you've done so much for so long, so wrong, that God's through with you. That is a lie from the pit of hell. God is not that way. He's a loving, kind, and gracious Father who's just waiting for His children to respond to His love. And He will restore. That's why He died. That's why He paid the price. To set us free. He wants us to be happy and fulfilled. So turn to God. Follow the path that's been blazed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Millions have. Millions, billions have come to God. Join the throne today. Father, thank you for your word. Oh, God, pour out your grace, pour out your mercy upon our congregation here, Lord. Sanctify us and set us apart for your special work. Command your blessing upon this congregation, these people that you have called out of the world to be your very own, Lord. You have got plans and purposes for each and every one here, and I pray that you would break that. Let it be a shining light of hope within their hearts. May you restore, strengthen, and bless each and every one. Father, may you go before us and give us a great week as we serve you. May you speak to our hearts. May you keep us on the highway of holiness that we might serve you with great joy. Fill us now, Lord, with your spirit. May your presence go with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Shall we stand?